From laser-focused to scattershot, what is this? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and Jeremy Wallace, who has been stationed in the Texas Senate for quite a bit of the last week or so. He's at HoustonChronicle.com. Do, do you ever leave? Do, do you watch on the live stream sometimes, or, you, or are you always there? Uh, a little bit of both. You know, so I'm there, you know, half the time and mm-hmm. the other half, you know, trying to do the live stream. You know, yeah. they don't give us a lot of extra benefit to being, you know, in the Senate at this point. There's mm-hmm. no power outlets. You can't even plug your computer in to cover it. Right. So it's kind of a weird situation. It is. Um, let me talk about the Texas Senate and the Texas legislature, generally the Senate in particular, uh, you know, specifically. What are they doing? What, what is going on, Jeremy? Um, I remember, uh, as we like to joke here, I'm old enough to remember. When the beginning of this legislative session uh, was just unfolding and everything was going to be laser-focused on a few things. One, COVID. Remember that the Speaker of the House, the new Speaker, Dade Phelan, had said, COVID is going to color everything that we do. That's pretty close to a direct quote. Does that have anything to do with constitutional carry of firearms or you know a bill to ban uh, people from playing in certain sports uh, you know if they are transgender or uh, abortion bills or um, any of the other things uh, the voting uh, legislation that we're seeing any of these other things don't have much to do with covid as far as i can tell the other big thing that was going to you know eat up all of the time of the legislative session came later around valentine's day when we had this monster ice storm a yep. polar vortex, and everything was going to be focused on what? On fixing the electricity grid. And at one point, the Texas Senate was sort of melting down about this issue of repricing the electricity market, and that didn't happen. Everybody kind of shrugged their shoulders and went on with other stuff. It seems to me now, and we're going to go through a couple of these, that everything's scattershot. It's um, People will talk about the daily grind. It's like the daily red meat grinder over at the Texas Senate, where it's just one of these things after another. And one of the issues that is very important to the Republican base, permitless carry of firearms, constitutional carry, as the supporters call it, that's being debated in the Texas House this afternoon. What changed? Why why are we um, going from being so focused on just a few things? to just all over the place with all these different issues. What's your read of it? Well, I think it tracked quite well with, you know, where we are with COVID-19 hospitalizations. It's weird. You can almost use that chart of our hospitalizations with the attention span of the Texas legislature. Mm -hmm. As those hospitalizations have declined dramatically, uh, you know, over the last two months, you've seen the legislature, which was, you know, you know, trying to focus on that early on, now kind of freed up to kind of get into red meat. You know, it's kind of like almost like, uh, you know, we're starting to see these festivals around Texas start opening up. I was just at yeah. the Poteet Strawberry Festival over yeah, the weekend. Yeah, how was that? Yeah, it was a blast. You know, you get the mm-hmm. Blue Bonnet Festival up and burn it. You yeah. know, it's just like, you know, all these things are happening. But it's almost the same thing for the legislature, right? Now the Red Meat Festival is, you know, wide open, <laughs> ready to go. You, you know, joke because, about that, but I think there is a red meat festival somewhere in Texas. Absolutely. I'm going to find it. <laughs> there's got to be. There's got to be. be. I know if there's, there's not, there should of, be. Yeah. You know there's a hundred barbecue festivals somewhere, you know, in every corner of the state. But, yes, sir. But, but, but now it's a red meat festival as people's, you know, concern about COVID-19 has diminished. Yeah. You know, 
it's like people are now reconvening, going back to normal, and back mm-hmm. to normal in the Texas legislature before a gubernatorial cycle means red meat, baby. Yes, and uh, back to normal on which issues they're talking about. Uh, we are maybe, I don't think we're getting past COVID. That's not true. But like you said, the numbers have changed. Correct. Um, we're also past, and, and, and let's put it this way. The pandemic, and I'm understating this, is abnormal. That is not uh, the usual situation for Texas, the country, or the world. It's also abnormal to have November elections matter more than March elections in Texas. Yes. Right? So in 2020, in 2020, let's put a fine point on it, Republican leadership was more worried about voters in the fall than they were in March. Um, They're about to do redistricting which we're going to do. Someone asked me if we could do a whole show on redistricting. And uh, this person, I guess they, you know, have nothing better to do. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that you really want to hear that, but I can talk about it at length if you like. We will do that at some point. But, But real quickly here, I would just say that because redistricting is about to happen and because Republican members of the legislature, the incumbents are going to run in districts that are optimized for partisan advantage and because those districts will have to be changed to make that happen, you'll have Republican incumbents running in neighborhoods that they never ran in before. And so what they're going to have to do is introduce themselves to Republican voters who are not familiar with them. So they need a checklist of things. Here are all the conservative things I did because they're going to potentially see Republican challengers in March about a year from now. And they're going to want to be able to say, look, I'm no rhino. I'm not the establishment. Look at all the stuff I did. Um, I passed constitutional carry of firearms, which they're on track to maybe do in the Texas House this afternoon. That's an emotional debate, um, one where I think um, both sides bring a lot of emotion to that. One of the disingenuous things that happens on that issue, I think, Jeremy, is one side will say the other side is just all emotional and I have all the facts on my side. This is Texas. People love guns. They love their guns. I'm understating that as well. They love their guns. And look, I'm not passing judgment on that. Um, But they'll, they'll say it's a constitutional right. I should not have to have a permit to be able to exercise my constitutional Right. There shouldn't be any uh, more money involved in it. There shouldn't be any bureaucracy involved in it. Uh, That's in the Bill of Rights. You know what else is in the Bill of Rights? Well, lots of things. Here's one for an example. Um, You have a constitutional right under the Seventh Amendment to a trial by jury. I don't see any magazines about that. (laughs) Right. I don't (laughs) see, you know, there's not like, you know, people love guns. And and look, fine, you know, whatever. But they shouldn't act like there's no emotion on their side. it's all emotional. And, and you've been to these rallies where they're protesting for uh, more uh, Second Amendment uh, freedoms and all of that. So we'll see what happens with that debate specifically. They're debating it in the House, as I mentioned. And it looks to be on track to pass this afternoon. Although, uh, as we talk here on Thursday, it could be killed on a point of order. I doubt that. Um, but we'll track it all at HoustonChronicle.com, QuorumReport.com. Um, one thing you wrote about this week out of the Texas Senate is the fact that Republicans, and I would note, were pushing forward with this uh, ban is not the right word, but regulations for who can play on which teams in different sports. Right? Yeah, it, it's it, people say it's banning transgender people. That's not quite right. And, and talking about this, it's difficult. One thing that um, one thing that strikes me in listening to testimony from the bathroom bill in 2017, which also touched on this issue of people who are transgender and how they interact with the rest of society. And some of the testimony this time around with this legislation, it's hard to talk about 
it's it's hard for people who are transgender to talk about. Yeah. A lot of times, and this and there's a lot in the testimony. It's it's very emotional because we're talking about something that people live with every day. Um, if they find themselves in that situation, they will say they don't even really understand what's happening with them and their bodies and their psychology. Correct. A lot of them yep. will say that, right? So it's it's difficult for people to understand it. Um, what is it that they're pushing exactly? And this comes, of course, after they hosted the NCAA men's uh, championship team, the Baylor Bears, uh, in the Senate and in the yep. House. But the NCAA said, hey, you shouldn't pass this thing about transgender people in sports. What's up with that? Yeah, okay. So, so you know, the, the, the two-second version here is that, you know, transgender girls would not be allowed to compete in girls' sports in Texas on the scholastic level. So high school, middle school sports, uh, transgender girls would be barred from competing in those activities. But already the UIL, which governs sports in Texas, Mm -hmm. already doesn't allow that. So we're kind of just doing something we don't need to do because UIL already has this mostly covered. And they said that on the floor. It's like yeah. you know, when they were debating this thing. So it's pretty much the status quo, but we just want to make a statement and put it in law so it's codified in law. Mm-hmm. I'm so tired of hearing the word codified. <laughs> oh, but you're at the Texas legislature. You'll I haven't codified anything in my life, <laughs> and nor shall you. <laughs> but yeah. but in this case, they want to codify in law to make sure it never happens. And it, it, it's funny because you know, they were talking about Connecticut a lot. You mm-hmm. know, In Connecticut, there's a case they heard of in which you know something happened where – a transgender girl wanted to win state titles and uh, that you know, that becomes kind of the trigger point. Yes. So we're doing it just in case what happened in Connecticut comes to Texas. But as you pointed out, in doing this, we're you know clearly poking the NCAA, which has made it very clear uh, to me this week and then to the rest of the nation this mm-hmm. week, you know, in, in separate interviews that the NCAA absolutely supports transgender girls yeah. or in this case transgender women in the NCAA mm-hmm. playing in women's sports there are some things that they have to do uh, in order to make sure that happens you know it's not completely unregulated mm-hmm. but the, you know they are trying to make you know their atmosphere open to those types of athletes and they've mostly have done that and as you pointed out the NCAA not only did they just have uh, and, you know, the women's final four in San Antonio, but in the future we have in the NCAA final four men's tournaments, you know, going to be in Houston and San Antonio. Mm-hmm. We got the college football championship will be in Houston in a couple of years. And so we have like a billion dollars of NCAA investments kind of on the line. Yeah. Uh, and so the point I was making in my story, you know, in today's Houston Chronicle and express news is that, uh, Despite those warnings and with so much to lose, the Texas Senate is plowing ahead. And they're just saying, no, we're going to do this thing. We're yeah. going to ban transgender girls from playing transgender or playing girl sports mm-hmm. because we want to make a statement that we don't want to go where Connecticut went. Yeah. The uh, issue in Texas with canceling events um, like those uh, like those championships it's a little different from some other states um, yes. because – and Republicans will make this case and business guys will make this case. Texas has a lot more leverage than some of those other places because we're a much bigger market. Yes. Um, I would compare it to um, on maybe on a, on a different uh, – it is a completely different issue, but maybe kind of switching the sides. 
in California, they have tight emissions standards for cars, and they were one of the first uh, states to have that. And the business guys in Detroit didn't necessarily want to, you know, outfit these cars with emissions uh, systems that would meet those standards. But guess what? If you can't sell those pickup trucks and cars in California, you can't sell them, yeah. right? You, you can't miss out on that market. I, w- I would throw that into this conversation by saying for these sports leagues and different teams to say you're not going to play in Texas – it, that that creates an issue for you too, uh, yeah, you know. If you're so so the so Republicans have leverage on this deal, but as you said, the NCAA was not vague in what they said about this. They do they absolutely yeah. don't agree. Well, and, and 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 almost to that same point, it's you know on the flip side of that, when the NCAA tells South Dakota we're not going to put championship events in there, it's mm-hmm. one thing. You know, right. when they ta- say to Texas. You know, if if they decided to move one of these events, that's you know, just taking a Final Four away is like a three hundred million dollar hit. So right. if they yeah. just want to take one of those away, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it has a bad you know influence on the state. Sure, um, Amber uh, Amber Briggle testified against all this. Now you may remember her; uh, she has been active on the issue since the bathroom bill uh, in twenty seventeen uh, failed in the Texas uh, legislature. It, it passed the passed the Senate twice, right? Um, Her child, her child is transgender. uh, And she says all this terrifies her. Uh, She says that she was scared to even be at the Capitol talking about it. I'm terrified because I'm the parent of a transgender child. And I'm afraid that by speaking here today, my words will be used against me should SB 1646 or SB 1311 pass. And my sweet son, whom I love more than life itself, will be taken from me. But here I am. I want you to know how hard it is for me to be here today. Not only am I terrified for the future of my family, but I'm a small business owner with two children at home who are still going to public school 100% online. I have a million better things to do than be here today, like rebuilding my business and supervising my children's online learning and repairing the damage that occurred to my home when the electric grid failed. But this committee and the bill's authors somehow deems my son's private medical care more important than COVID relief for women-owned small businesses or making public schools safer or fixing ERCOT. Bergel says it's been a struggle for her and her family throughout all of this. She says if they're not going to focus on uh, dealing with the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which there has been some... Uh, legislation moved on that, although some people have said it's pretty superficial so far. I I would say it's fair to make this assessment. They have not fixed the electricity grid in Texas yet. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) That's where we are with that. We can say that 100% confidence. As you said at the beginning of the program, uh, we're not past COVID yet either. However, Bergel said, if we're going to do this, if we're going to go down this road, then there are some things she wants lawmakers to know about. When my son was four years old, he asked me if scientists could turn him into a boy. I didn't understand then that he was trans. I only knew that he wasn't like most girls his age and that something inside him was hurting. Like many of you, I thought he was asking for surgery and I freaked out. But after doing research, I came to understand that gender affirmation surgery isn't done on minors and that there is a whole array of medical options available for transgender youth, including hormone blockers, which are 100% reversible are not new and are clinically proven to save the lives of the trans children taking them. Today, my son is 13 years old, the most popular boy in seventh grade, 
and loved by our friends, family, our church, and our community. This is possible because he has parents who affirm him and provide him the support he needs. Republicans will say simply that a boy should not be on the girls' team. That's not fair to the girls because the boy is more um, athletically adept, uh, is uh, physically stronger uh, in different ways. The girls will absolutely say that that's not true. I had someone um, someone make the case earlier today to me that this reminded them, Jeremy, of the argument about men and women uh, being in the armed forces together. Yep. Um, saying that you know where where this naturally goes is because now you don't have a seg a, you know a segregated by uh, by sex or gender you don't have a military that that is that way women can serve in combat roles now right um, and if you think about it that way then the natural extension of where we would be going with all this is sports that are not um, separated out by gender yep. Right, that boys and girls would just play on the same teams. What would be wrong with that? I said, well, good luck making that case to people in Texas. Here's one, and um, again, all this is sensitive, but here's one reason that this is so different from what was happening with the bathroom bill in 2017, which eventually failed, but, w but was focused on this issue of, of people who are transgender who make up such a small segment of our society. Uh, and we're talking about this number is not exactly right, but 0.000024% of the population, right? It's yes. something like that. I'm making it, I'm oversimplifying, but for a reason. Um, when the lieutenant governor was making the case on that in 2017, he was pointing to something that was not happening. He was trying to say that men might dress as women and go into women's rooms and attack women sexually. And no one was able to point to cases of that happening anywhere, right? Yep. One reason, a big reason this is different politically is that the thing that's being pointed to as something that a lot of feel, a lot of people feel is not right, that it is happening, right? That there are uh, people who are born as a female or born as a male who they can see it happening in the news. There are real examples of these folks now trying to play sports um, with, with a team that is not of the same sex that they were born as. And there are a lot of people who have a serious problem with that. I say all that to say this, not to make any judgments about it or anything else, but the politics of it are different. I think that if this goes over to the House, I'm not going to sit here and bet you that the House is going to kill it the way they did with the bathroom bill because the Republican uh, office holders are hearing from people all the time that they think, it, real people, grassroots people and others in their communities, that they think that that's not right, Jeremy, that that's happening. Well, and, and that's the case that, um, you know, uh, Charles Perry, the Republican from Lubbock, really tried to, you know, make this case that this is just about, you know, the safety and the fairness of the sport. You know, it's like, and like you said, he's pointing to these other cases in other states where this has happened, you know, and so they can see an, an example of a situation where somewhere down the line, Texas could have a problem with, you know, uh, uh, somebody who had, you know, been born male, mm -hmm. uh, you know, competing in a women's you know, track and field event and, you know, and beating everybody in the field and winning the championship type thing. Mm -hmm. That's what they're kind of, they think they have examples of that happening in other places. And that's what they say they're defending. Yeah. Now, the difficult thing in the whole debate you know, and you kind of hit on this with like the, you know, we've been through this discussion before a little bit about the military, 
But yeah. boy, when you listen to the debate, particularly of the you know the older generation of senators trying to talk about you know transgender issues <laughs> in sports, you mm-hmm. hear some really crazy stuff. You know, where it's just like <laughs> yes. you know, I, you know, one of the senators was talking about you know could women really play you know basketball against men? I'm like. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, I certainly have seen that before, like mm-hmm. on every playground in right. the state of Texas. <laughs> we will track this and see where it goes. This next um, uh, item is fascinating to me. Almost every senator in the Texas Senate voted to rein in the governor's powers during a disaster. Yep. You might have thought, listening to this show last year, that it might only be Republicans who wanted to do that. At certain points, and then and then at other other points, it might have been only Democrats who wanted to do that. Um, the governor didn't get a pass from either side as he was dealing with COVID nineteen, the after effects and and the um, you know the fallout from his various executive orders. When Republican office holders and the chairman of the Republican Party in Texas, they were saying he was going too far. Democrats were saying he wasn't going far enough, or he was overruling the local officials when he shouldn't be doing that. Um, this week, they passed uh, a constitutional amendment in the Senate, and we'll see what happens in the House. I'm not 100% convinced it's on a fast track over there. Uh, but in the in the Senate, the constitutional amendment uh, is designed to put the legislature at least in the mix when this is going on, when a disaster is going on. Um, because over the last year, that wasn't the case. The governor was basically making all the calls on everything and asserting that his office had total authority to do everything unilaterally. Under this amendment that was carried by Senator Brian Birdwell from Granbury, south of Fort Worth, uh, one thing that would have to happen is if a disaster declaration goes on more than a month, the legislature gets called in. Uh, just just sort of automatically. They have to come in and say yes or no to what the governor's doing or work out something with him that's in between. Either they cancel everything he's doing or they put a rubber stamp on what he's doing or they can come up with their own solution for what's going on. It would not be dissimilar to the way it's handled at the local level where a county judge can issue an executive order like we saw in Dallas County, Harris County, uh, to a lot of controversy. You know, there there was... (laughs) Not everybody agreed with what uh, Clay Jenkins in Dallas was doing or Lena Hidalgo was doing in Harris County. Um, but after they issue their executive order, they have to go to commissioner's court after seven days yep. and see if it's okay or not. Um, this would kind of be a similar check on the governor, which doesn't exist right now. They are also in the House talking about some legislation that would, as Republicans put it, clarify that the governor's orders supersede local orders, which tells me that they don't actually right now. Yeah, that's not in statute right now. Um, but what was this debate like in the Senate? Uh, one of the things that was key is um, only the legislature would be in charge of whether businesses could be open yeah. or not. Right. I thought that was the biggest part of the debate for me when I was listening to it. You know, the the criticism over you know closing businesses. You know, then trying to measure how they they were going to reopen. You know, that would be taken out of the governor's hands if this were to happen again, or as many people say, when it happens again. <laughs> um, I, I, in this situation, you know, if the governor wanted to close businesses, he would have to bring the legislature back and convene them 
and ask them to do it. Only the legislature could close businesses in the future. So think about all those hair salons. You know, think yeah. about all all those fights that we had. You know, over whether or not you can get a haircut or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would all be left up to the Texas legislature uh, to do, and the governor could never do anything about it. So all your bars could continue to open. Mm-hmm. And do whatever the heck they want to do, you know. And the governor would not be able to stop them unless he got the legislature to do it for him. On more than one issue now, the Texas Senate has taken hard stances against the position of Governor Abbott. Now the Republicans go out of their way to say this is not a referendum on Abbott. Uh, Birdwell, the senator who uh, carried the constitutional amendment, he said he gave um, a lot of credit to Abbott for the way that he handled the pandemic, right? Um, he, t- he talked about uh, the decisions that he made, um, you know, all through the last year uh, as being pretty stellar. That's not a direct quote, but that's basically what he was saying. Um, this is a question of power and not necessarily whether they agree with specific decisions. And I think that's actually, uh, look, I know there are Republicans and we've talked about it here on the show and we've quoted some of them, played you the audio of different folks who are Republicans who said that Abbott was messing things up. All, all over the place last year, uh, including Chairman West and others. Um, but on the question of power, um, and this gets down into the weeds, but I think it matters, um, the legislature has a role, right? It's not just that you have an executive at the presidential level, and this was interesting in the debate. Birdwell said on the business question, he said that at the national level, only Congress can declare war or not, right? And that the executive can't do that. He was talking about livelihoods. He, he was using the word livelihoods to describe business, and he said only the legislature should have any say over that. He was kind of making the comparison between these weighty decisions at the federal and state level. And the reason that you would have the legislature do it instead of the governor is because the legislators, the state representatives and the state senators, are actually closer to the communities, and that's uh, that's borne out in a couple of ways. One, they stand for election more often than the governor, right? In the in the House, they run every two years instead of every four, and in both the House and Senate, they represent districts that. And again, we'll talk about the way they carve those up at some point here, but but they are representing specific communities. So they maybe have a better idea and their finger on the pulse of what's needed in those communities. Uh, And so to have a check on the governor seems like a natural thing for both Republicans and Democrats in the Texas Senate. I do think that Governor Abbott may be thanking the fact right now he may be uh, thinking a lot about and, and, and thanking God that it seems like the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, is more aligned with him, with Abbott, than Lieutenant Governor Patrick. Two big issues now, at least two, that the Senate has basically taken the stance against Abbott. It's on this and on electricity repricing. Earlier this year, a, a couple months, well, I guess a month ago, uh, they had uh, all, almost all of them. Was it unanimous in the Senate? Oh, actually, no, I'm, I'm wrong. There were three no votes on that. Um, but that's almost the whole Senate, just like this, saying taking a completely opposite position of what the governor uh, wanted to see. The governor was a hard no, and his uh, Public Utility Commission uh, members were hard no's on uh, repricing the electricity market. So I don't really buy into this whole idea yet that the lieutenant governor, and I'm using the word yet for, for a reason, I don't buy into it that he's getting ready to challenge Abbott for the governor's office, but they're certainly making some moves that don't um, don't dissuade anybody from believing that argument either right now, Jeremy. Well, well and, and for the political science geeks out there, uh, it's like we know already that Texas is unique compared to a lot of other states because our governor isn't nearly as strong uh, as other states, you know, because of the fact that the lieutenant governor 
gets to set the agenda in the Senate and uh-huh. has that power to, you know, veto things as well. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. the lieutenant governor in Texas has traditionally been a more powerful role at times than, you know, even what the governor has. And what you're seeing here, you know, think about it in this, you know, legislation in that context that it essentially is moving even more power into the basket of the lieutenant governor to mm-hmm. be able to make the call on how we respond during a disaster. It's like now the, the lieutenant governor gets even more powerful, mm-hmm. you know, in this scenario and more power is taken away from the governor. And it's right. like interesting to think, you know, it's like, you know, the, for the political scientists out there trying to measure, it's like, boy, it's like, are we creating a, a lieutenant governor that's now going to not have the ability to shut down businesses? Mm-hmm. It's like during a pandemic. It's like, that's an interesting, like, or which kinds of businesses get shut down. Right. It's like, and it could be really interesting to see how that plays out in real life if this bill, again, gigantic if, if this bill ever makes it into becoming law. One thing I would add to that is that in April and May of an odd-numbered year, the lieutenant governor is at his most powerful. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because it, because the veto power you're talking about over what comes to the Senate floor and all of that, this yep. is when it happens, right? That The speaker and the lieutenant governor certainly rise in power during the middle of the legislative session. Then at the end of the session, the governor rises in power again because he starts either vetoing or signing those bills, yep. right? the, the, the things that will become Texas law. Um, Kevin Brady, longtime congressman from the Houston area, from the Woodlands, Texas, representing um, Montgomery County and then up sort of north through East Texas, uh, has been um, somebody who I would say, and I don't know that he would say this, an establishment Republican, a business Republican, and somebody who's been in leadership in Washington for many years. This is his 13th term, and he announced uh, to the Woodlands Chamber of Commerce, which, again, establishment, business, he used to run that group years ago, the business yep. com- uh, the uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce in, uh, in the Woodlands, announced he's not running again. He will not seek a 14th term. What will the primary look like for that seat, Jeremy? Here we go once again. Um, it, March of next year, we will have a whole bunch of yeah. people lined up to try to get that seat. But probably some current legislators, uh, maybe some local officials uh, and others we're not even thinking about yet. Yeah, well, let's use history as our, our guide, right? You know, when Ted Poe announced he was going to resign, we ended up with, uh, what, eight people who ended up running in that race in the primary. Right. Uh, when, you know, uh, uh, Pete Olson of Sugarland, when he announced mm-hmm. he was going to re- you know, retire last time, it's like we had 15. <laughs> Wide open field. Yeah, it was, it's just crazy. So I'm assuming, you know, Same based thing. on that history, it's, a, it's not out of the question to think that 20 people could be trying to run uh, in the Republican primary to replace Kevin Brady. But, you know, and going back to what you're saying, it's like, you know, Kevin Brady to me is interesting because, he, you know, he ran the Ways and Means Committee, which, like, mm-hmm. in, for people listening to this who don't know, uh, the Ways and Means Committee pretty much has jurisdiction over anything. You know, it's like he had his hands in every major piece of legislation that would have made it through, you know, the U.S. House. And so that kind of power that he brought in there is like he's part of this old guard of Texas Republicans, you know, who we've seen retiring in huge numbers in the last few years. Think about guys mm-hmm. like, you know, Mac Thornberry, you know, who had such a role, you know, in, in dictating how the military gets funded and mm-hmm. taken care of in Texas. You know, think about guys like Lamar Smith, who was a chairman and Jeb Henselling, you know, it's like all these guys like have moved on. And it's like, we, yeah. you know, we still have, uh, you know, Mike McCall, uh, the Austin Republican mm-hmm. who is uh, the highest ranking member on foreign affairs for Republicans. Right. Uh, but after that, you don't have a lot of like, you know, chairmanship timber. If the Republicans take back, 
you know, the majority at some point down the mm-hmm. line. I'm kind of curious to see, like, what that void's going to look like going forward. Because, look, Congress is all about seniority. It's like yes. you don't get a chairmanship unless you've been there for a long time. And we have, you know, I, the way I was kind of calculating since, you know, in the last four years, you know, pretty much half of Texas will have a new member of Congress, you know, just because of all the retirements. That's not wow. normal. <laughs> right. We've gone decades where we've lost two or three members of Congress the mm-hmm. whole decade. And we've lost, you know, yeah. you know, 19 to 20 members of Congress in the last four to five years now. They would go to Washington and just stay there forever. Um, yeah. And it, what drove them out? I mean, I think some uh, some of it is not being in the majority anymore. Yeah. Right? Um, that, that certainly when you don't get to hold the gavel anymore, that committee work is not nearly as fun. Uh, or, or and certainly does certainly does not seem as meaningful. Um, and then, of course, I think you also had from some of these uh, Republican members uh, living through the Trump era, when that is nothing like what they dealt with before when they were in Washington. Um, I won't say it that it wasn't fun, <laughs> or that it wasn't um, you know something that they enjoyed, but it was certainly uh, a different um, governing environment. Uh, in Washington. Yeah, that's a really good point. I talked to uh, Charlie Gonzalez, the former San Antonio Democrat, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago on this. Being in the minority in, you know, the U.S. Congress is even worse than it's, you know, than in years past. It's yep. just become even more isolative. So you think of guys like, you know, you know, again, you know, with Kevin Brady having his hands in every major piece of legislation, then having to shift into this world where no bill he writes will ever get voted on again. Right. Because <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much kind of how this works in this system now. Yep. And it's it, so if you really do want to legislate and try to make a difference, you know, guys like Thornberry and mm-hmm. Brady, uh, those guys, you know, don't really have much of a role when the Democrats are running. They can't really do a lot, you know, and it's hard to kind of get your imprint on stuff. Uh, particularly on anything that feels like a partisan issue and ways and means deals with a lot of that stuff. So I think a lot of it does have to do with you can't be a chairman having all that power and then just, you know, hang out, you know, getting nothing done for the next couple of years and be okay with that. The flip side. Yeah. The flip side of that would be uh, what has happened with um, Joaquin Castro, who was in Washington building up seniority like you're talking about. And uh, there's always all this chatter about whether he or his brother, Julian Castro, would run for something statewide in Texas since they, you know, have a pretty high profile, uh, you know, here and uh, to a lesser extent nationally, but they have a national profile as well. Um, But I would think that if he had spent that much time to build up seniority and then suddenly he's in the majority, on Capitol Hill, now he gets to do stuff. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to quit. And I mean, and he's been a key player on, on uh, several issues uh, over the last couple of years since the Democrats uh, got back in uh, in the House. Um, the legislature also dealing with voting restrictions, which we talked about at length uh, last week, and the difference between the House and Senate bill on this. It's um, they're sort of light years apart. Right, you were taking a look at that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, I'm, you know, this weekend I'll have. A, uh, I'm going to break down the the House bill and the Senate bill. You know, line by line. I've read both of them. You know, from front to back and back and front, <laughs> uh, trying to get a you know feel for what they look like. It, big differences. You know, major differences in, in what they do. Uh, you know, all that stuff in Senate Bill Seven that goes after you know 
you know, where polling locations can be, uh, you know, 24 hour voting, uh, late night voting, all that stuff's out of the house bill. And it's like, none of that's in there. And Mm -hmm. so you kind of see how different these are. And, you know, quite honestly, what people are hearing on TV about Georgia is probably confusing some of the discussion here. So what I've done, you know, what, you know, this, this story will, you know, break down, all the differences, you know, between the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. uh, and also kind of point out how different this Georgia bill is versus ours, and we shouldn't get mixed up into that conversation as much. It's just a different playing field. Right. Usually when Republican office holders in Texas appear on national broadcasts, it's Fox News Channel. Um, I will give Brian Hughes, the Republican senator from Mineola, Texas, from East Texas, some credit because he's been on CNN a couple of times. Yeah. And they don't have the uh, friendliest questions, although I wouldn't say the questions are unfair. Let me give you an example. Uh, Hughes on uh, CNN with Pamela Brown, uh, one of the anchors there. And, of course, Hughes is the guy who carried the bill, SB7, in the Texas Senate. And he's been pointing to supposed voter fraud as a reason to improve the system. Now, he tries to make the case that this is not a response to what happened in 2020, and we talked about this last week, the idea that you have a Republican base that thinks Donald Trump got a raw deal in 2020, so something has to be done on, quote, voter integrity. It has to happen. That is one of those boxes that has to be checked for all of these incumbent Republicans when they run for re-election next year, right? Yep. yep. Um, so, Pamela Brown, she's not having it. Um, she is asking him about this uh, accusation that there was some voter fraud and the idea that there was widespread voter fraud when there was not. And she brought... The receipts. Are you as going to American do this Airlines. after every election to keep putting bills on the table to, to you know, put more restrictions in place on the, in the name of voter fraud when the uh, the examples that I look through today are statistically insignificant? Like I said, the 16 were about people putting wrong addresses on uh, their applications well, you, or ballot. So, I and, understand and by the those way, examples. I am not. I'm, no one, I, I think, wants fraud. I don't think anyone wants fraud. Um, people want to have confidence in their vote. But I'm taking it from the Texas Secretary of State's office that said that this election was secure. The 2020 election was secure and smooth in the state of Texas. So why are there is there this bill with these measures that okay. many activists say makes it harder to vote and will impose more restrictions and and has poll watchers videotaping people at the polls? You're relying on one article with a political slant to it that talks about a certain number of cases. I'm telling you, there are 400 open cases. And let's go back and look the at the 2020 sworn election? testing. Let's go back and look. This is not about 2020. This is about making the process better. I know, but look I'm not, sworn, I'm not, I'm not just testimony. saying this from one I'm article. I want to make sure our viewers know that. this is. I'm, I'm citing the Secretary of State and the Attorney General's office, Ken Paxton's office, and what they have uncovered. But go ahead. I'm referring to your statistics about the number of cases and the number of hours. That's one article. It's out of context. There are over 400 open cases. Here's what I'm saying. When Democrats and Republicans come to us and when, when Democrats and Republicans come to us and testify under oath, here are the problems. Here's how people are cheating. Here's how this election was affected. We respond. We're talking about prosecutors. We're talking about failed candidates on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. As far as American Airlines goes, that's a good Texas company. They made some general statements about voting. We agree, voting's important. We want every vote to count, to count accurately. Very few statements I saw from companies referred specifically to Senate Bill 7. He mentioned American Airlines there um, and said that they made some general comments about voting and that these companies aren't necessarily against Senate Bill 7. Jeremy, what was remarkable remarkable about American Airlines' statement is they were, quote, strongly opposed to 
Senate Bill 7. Yeah. You know, after it passed the Senate, they put out a statement that said, we're against it, right? And Lieutenant Governor Patrick said they should read the damn bill. They can have their opinion, but they should read the bill. Um, Brian Hughes, who was born for this legislative session, he is carrying so many of these pieces of legislation that are controversial, and you hear him there. He's still trying to be nice to Pamela Brown, but that was about as agitated as you hear Brian Hughes get. He, he was speaking a little more quickly and trying to make his case. Um, but the fact is that you've had more companies since we talked last week that have come out against some of these voting restrictions in different states, including uh, Amazon, Google, GM, Starbucks. When I think of uh, liberal companies, I don't think of GM. Certainly. And and look at uh, Amazon with its uh, union busting around the country. There was a big story out of Alabama on that. They are not always aligned with Democrats, that's for sure. One thing that I was able to figure out this week is that as these statements of, uh, you know, opposition to different voting bills come out from these different companies, there are also under the surface a lot of companies that are worried about it. They're just not making statements. Yeah. So I have heard from some folks uh, who are familiar with these conversations, different big-name firms that have been visiting with Texas lawmakers and saying, look, we know you guys have to pass something. This is what Republican voters want. But don't go as far as what they did in Senate Bill 7 because this is not what our customers want to see. Uh, you're going to drive people out of the state with this, or you're going to at least have people angry about it in a way uh, that isn't conducive to business. One other thing that I would throw out there, and this is more of a philosophical discussion, and we'll get, get into it more later, but I think with the, with the voting laws and with redistricting, this is a hell of a tease for whenever we do the, fun, the big show on redistricting, because <laughs> I have mentioned this a few times. Um, when it comes to allocation of power, that also impacts allocation of resources. So think about the fact that if you have folks who are representing certain parts of Texas, let's think about Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin, the big economic engines of the state, right? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously we have the oil patch in Midland, Odessa, and down in South Texas. Um, the folks who these Republicans are trying to please with these anti-voting laws generally live in areas that are either suburban or more out in rural Texas, which are not as much the economic engines, right? Yep. And if you have a power that starts to be taken away from the urban centers through the redistricting process and through clamping down on the way people are allowed to vote in some of these places, um, that will mean less in the way of allocation of resources when it comes to writing the state budget, when it comes to putting infrastructure projects in place, think about civil engineers, attorneys, people who do all sorts of work on projects that are either paid for by or are tangentially connected to government investment in different parts of the state. My point is this. If you have more equal representation all across the state, that adds up to more equal distribution of resources across the state, which also translates into more business opportunities for yep. these guys who do big investments, capital investments, and other sorts of services as well. Well, it's interesting, too, because like, like you mentioned, you know, we, we know some of the companies that have come out already and, and had things to say. But I'm interested in the, you know, that, that dynamic of the businesses that we're bringing into Texas, right? You know, all these things that the Republicans are doing, you know, to kind of, be, you know, create incentives to get companies like Tesla, uh, to get, you know, Google, to get uh, SpaceX all into Texas. It's like at some point, if those types of companies start, you know, you know, talking more, not just publicly, but also behind the scenes, 
that's right. going to move the needle quite a bit because mm-hmm. again they're hiring people or bringing people sometimes from other states right and yep. like and so if you're looking at places of like houston and san antonio all of a sudden having less hours to vote it's like that is a concern for the people who live in those places who now work for these corporations, you know. And it's like that's where it starts to get dicey for the legislature. Uh, yeah. Do you start putting up a sign that says, if you bring your business here, uh, your employees may not be able to vote in the same way they're used to voting in other mm-hmm. places before you got here. <laughs> and I, I think that's the problem mm-hmm. for like particularly for some more of the you know, progressive you know, leading mm-hmm. companies, you know, that like Google – uh, you know, that want to be, you know, more progressive and trying yeah. to appeal to younger, you know, people, of course. Sure. And I remember, um, you know, not just the, the tech companies, but uh, oil and gas in particular in 2015, um, yep. they were very nervous about some anti-gay marriage legislation uh, that was being pushed at that time. I think about the fact that, you know, Exxon was building that uh, big headquarters uh, in the Woodlands, right? Yeah. Uh, in Montgomery County. And if you're trying to recruit the best and brightest from around the world, you want everybody from around the world to think it's a big welcoming place. As one person put it to me, it's hard enough to get somebody to move to the Woodlands, Texas, if they don't know anything else about it other than it's just called the Woodlands, Texas. And then you put up a big sign that says, oh, by the way, if you're gay or you have a gay brother or sister or cousin or just any of your friends are gay, we hate you and they don't want, we don't want them there. We don't want them here. You know, yeah. It's not the way to attract people. Uh, when you're trying to run a business. Um, that is enough show. We're going to track all of these issues as we go through this uh, legislative session. We're actually probably in about the last six weeks here of real legislating. Yep. You believe that? It's already gone by that fast. Boom. Yeah, now Went it's from, crunch time. This is where, where bills live and die, you know, by the moment. Yeah, every um, every person I've seen at the Capitol as I've uh, walked around uh, this past week, they're all pointing to their watch. Tick, tick, tick. And just like that, it's enough show. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Jeremy's work is at HoustonChronicle.com each and every day. And we would love to have you subscribe right now at QuorumReport.com. Just go to the homepage, click subscriptions. We'll get you all signed up. We'll see you right here next week. Mm-hmm.